0: Welcome, traveller, to this, the first episode of the Shoreline of Infinity podcast, Soundwave. My name is RJ Bailey, and I will be your host on this voyage through some of the very best science fiction. So, what can you expect from this new podcast? Our own group of audio dramatists will be adapting, writing, sound designing and performing mind-bending stories, and on occasion, you'll be treated to some excellent sci-fi music as well. Shoreline of Infinity also runs a monthly event in Scotland's capital called Event Horizon, and while we're waiting on the completion of our molecular disacombiner project so everyone can quickly, cheaply and carbon neutrally travel to be there in person, you'll have a chance to hear the recordings of these live shows if you're not able to join us. Alongside that, we'll also have me, RJ Bailey, presenting RJ Bailey's Sonic Space, where I'll be discussing all manner of science fiction topics with some of the most interesting figures from, in, and around the world of science fiction. Just be aware that the language can get a little bit fruity in the Sonic Space portions and the story portions and the, all of it. There could be fruity language. It's not going to be a sweary podcast, but there may be. Stuff that the extremely easily offended won't like. Just covering our backs there. Don't worry though, Relay Satellite UR Beta Cook is fully operational though, so you should be getting a nice clear signal on all clean and vulgar language with no radiation leak and very few thermoplasmic interference artifacts. But first up, we're going to present you with what will form the backbone of Soundwave. Audio Stories, wonderful writers combining with versatile voice talents to deliver terrific tales across time, space, dimensions and more. In the first half we have Matthew Castle's story, A Choice for the Golden Age, read by Danielle Farrow. Then you'll get to enjoy Izzy Hurahan narrating ATU334 The Wise by Majira Smith, And we'll finish off our audio story programming after the intermission, with myself reading "Pigeon" by Guy Stewart. Then, to finish off, A Christmas Treat. A festive take on a classic tale. Our first audio drama brought to you via Soundwave. We're going to be listening to Other Colours by Michael F. Russell, adapted by Jonathan Whiteside. Now, this is the first podcast... From Soundwave, it's a little Christmas treat before we really kick things off in the new year. The metal is still hot and workable, so this might not necessarily be the cast iron format for the show. So, think of this as episode zero. To kick things off on this episode zero, however, we're starting with the excellent audio story, Keeping the Peace, written by Katrina Butler and Rob Butler are narrated by the very excellent Debbie Cannon.
1: Keeping the Peace by Katrina Butler and Rob Butler Read by Debbie Cannon Narla sees Zola climbing a tree in the blazing summer sunshine. Her brother's skin gleams with a deep brown tan. He doesn't need to worry about skin cancer. He's laughing. He knows he can't fall. At least, not this year. Reluctantly, she withdraws her gaze from the windows and tunes in again to the droning of her schoolteacher. Narla is in the female 80 plus stream, so she has to concentrate on job skills, caring for elderly relatives, and, finally, the demands required for her own inevitable senility. All in that order. Her whole life is very orderly. Hannah's hands close over Narla's tightly clenched fists. Their eyes meet. I know it's so hard but he's still got at least six months and look how he's enjoying himself. Narla puts on her grateful face, whispers thank you to her friend and deliberately relaxes her fingers. Hannah smiles at her and pats her shoulder. They resume their studies, but Narla's eyes are soon drawn back to the window and the sight of Zola now hanging upside down from the top branches Yes, she thinks, look at him enjoying himself, that's all he ever does, the government actually pays him to have fun, and all because he's going to die when he's thirteen, but me, I'm going to live to be eighty-two, whoopee, so I have to go to school all day while he just enjoys himself. Narla stirs her porridge while Zola toys with his fried breakfast. He normally wolfs it down, but today is his thirteenth birthday. She glances at her father, pretending he's reading the newspaper, and her mother biting her lip as she makes sandwiches. Zola leaps up, breakfast abandoned, grabs his lunch and stuffs it into a bag. Be careful, dear. Their mother puts her hands to her mouth. She's never had to say that before. She reaches out to clutch him, but Zola squirms away. I'm sorry, Zola, but you must be careful now. You could still have a full year, you know. I know, he snarls, and is gone. His mother watches him with an aching gaze through the frosty window. All that snow. Narla imagines her mother thinking of him sliding on ice and crashing over onto his head. She tries to stop herself
2: smiling. Can I have his bacon and eggs? Of
1: course not, darling. You know it's bad for you. Narla slams down her spoon. Hello? I'm going to live to be 82. How can something be bad for me? It makes no sense. Not this again, Narla, snaps her father. Not today, please. You know full well that you need to keep healthy so you won't spend a large part of your long life ill or in hospital. That's not really what you want, is it? Let's just try and think about poor Zola today, can we? Of course she thinks, bitterly. Poor Zola. After a few minutes of tense silence, her father clears his throat. There is at least some good news in the paper today. Oh, what's that, dear? A new sentient has been born, and her life prediction is ninety-five. It's a pity these sentients don't just die out, muttered Narla, still wondering if she could nick a bit of bacon without anybody seeing her. Her father lowers his paper. Narla, how can you say such a thing? What's the matter with you today? Narla shrugs. I just think we'd be better off without them, That's all her father sighs. Better off without them. Can you imagine what that would be like? Nobody would know when they were going to die. We wouldn't be able to plan for anything. Life would be chaotic. It used to be like that, grumbled Narla. We learnt all about it in history class. Then you should also have learned how the sentients have brought peace and certainty to the world. There are no more wars. No more suffering. What about those terrorists on the news who know they can't be killed? They are being dealt with by the authorities. And all those rumours about some of the sentients being frauds. Hearsay and tittle-tattle, listen to me, Narla. The sentients are our salvation. The more that are born, the more information we can gather about the future. And the better it will be for everybody. We know how long we will live, and our expectations and ambitions are adjusted accordingly. Without this knowledge, poor Zola would not have had such a happy, carefree childhood. No, he'd have been in school all the time like me. It's not fair. Why can't I have some fun as well? That's a
2: terrible thing to say.
1: A year later, and it's approaching midnight. The family sit quietly in their lounge. Zola is trembling. His mother hugs him to her. He whispers, there's only ten minutes left. How's it going to happen? I I feel fine. It must be some explosion or accident or something. He leaps up. I should get away from you. Whatever it is could kill all of you as well. Narla sniggers. Don't be stupid. I'm going to live to 82. Dad's going to live to 78. Mum's... Narla, please. Well, I'm just saying... Well, don't.
2: Silence. A knock on the door.
1: The adults glance anxiously at each other, Narla's father crosses to the window, pulls aside the curtains by an inch or two, and looks out. Who is it, dear? He slowly closes the
2: curtain, but does not turn to face them. He seems to sag. Armed police. Dozens of them.
1: All around the house.
2: A Choice for the Golden Age by Matthew Castle. Read by Danielle Farrow. The captain wakes,
3: reborn into the Golden Age for the sixteenth time. Welcome back, sister, says ship. We're nearly there. Iko's eyes snap into focus. She recognizes ship's voice, her immediate surroundings, And the same old sequence of sensation and thought that has followed each of her embodiments to date. The unnerving sharpness in the lines and corners of the printing chamber's ceiling, the tickle of an air current on her cheek, and the never answered question that bursts into her mind each time I am awake, but am I alive? Even as she flexes each new finger and waggles each new toe, she explores her wider sensorium evaluating the status of the golden age, the ship, the crew, the sleepers, and the progress of the journey. She swings her legs off the fabrication table and takes two cautious steps towards the mirrored hatch. She looks herself up and down and giggles. She is a child. Short, shiny-skinned, narrow-jointed, and unmistakably non-biological, but elegant nonetheless. She estimates her mass to be around 18% less than the last time she was embodied, which was... As she forms the question, ship soundlessly supplies the answer. 863 years ago. She's smaller and a little less human each time she wakes. Guess we're really pushing against matter-energy constraints now, she says aloud, testing the sound of her voice. It is a simple electronic speaker system this time, and the tone is high and piping. She giggles again like tinkling water. She was always a good talker. She'll never need to stop for breath again. We've had to consume significant reaction mass in course adjustments, says ship. And most systems are approaching their resilience thresholds. We've had a number of closed-loop failures. Non-linearities are proliferating, and there's a choice to be made. That's why the Voyagers wanted you back, rather than the rostered primary crew member. The Golden Age needs its captain. Iko nods. She reaches for the hatch,
2: but stops suddenly and gasps. What is it, Iko?" Asks Ship. A dream! I was dreaming! There are several
3: types of sleeper on the Golden Age. At any one time, there are two or three active human crew. Their primary role other than maintaining biological continuity, is to manage the ship's zoo and gardens. They grow and eat food, make love, raise children, and sleep and dream in the age-old way. And there are the cold sleepers, the 200-odd descendants or surrogated offspring of the original crew, whose metabolism has been slowed to a crawl by cryoprotectants and ever more tenuously preserved hibernation technology. A complex, ship-devised algorithm rotates them out of cold sleep at an optimal premenopausal moment and suggests when to rotate their adolescent children back into hibernation, taking numerous parameters, including physical and personal development milestones and ship resource constraints, into some unknowable account. Cold sleepers dream, but never remember. Less than 30% of the embryos remain viable after a dozen millennia but that still leaves a veritable treasure trove of human diversity. It is the sleep of possibility, a dreamless, resting potential. Finally, there are the uploaded, the preserved mind states of former crew. Ship's network storage substrate is a finite resource, and a human mind takes up a lot of space, so not everyone gets uploaded. The Golden Age's original crew are permitted this privilege, as they form a vital first-hand link with the terrestrial culture that built and launched the Golden Age. Usually, at least one avatar-embodied mind state is active at any one time, passing knowledge and traditions to the newer generations. Between embodiments, the uploaded crew consume few resources, evolving at a glacial pace, the minimum required for self-coherence. Ship's avatar meets Ico outside the printing chamber. We'll go straight to the viewing gantry," Ship says. "You can tell me about your dream on the way." Ship is a sleek, metallic-skinned, human-sized figure, motionless in repose but implacable in motion.
2: Aiko glides smoothly, despite her toy-like appearance. "I've never dreamed in upload before." The metal floors are
3: worn and the walls are thinner than Aiko remembers. The golden age is consuming herself. As she nears the end of her voyage, there's a door at the end of a curving wooden walkway. Water laps underneath. She tries to slow down, but her little legs appear to be slaved to ship's long, relentless stride. There are plants in the windows. Someone is waiting. They emerge onto the viewing gantry and join a small family. There's a man. He wears hooded coveralls with soil stains on the knees and elbows. There's a woman and a boy. Two males. Earlier generations of crew would have regarded this as wastefully
2: suboptimal. She reviews their life histories again. They're good people, but they seem nervous today. We're honoured by your embodiment, Grandmother Captain, says the woman.
3: She looks confused perhaps wondering why Ship made Ico so small.
2: We are at an important point in our journey, Ico says, and a decision needs to be made. Ico gazes out.
3: A globe fills the screen. It's a representation of a terrestrial planet situated in the habitable zone of the K-class star, Broombridge 1618, their destination. In most respects, Ship is the real master of the Golden Age, of course. But for now, there is still a former human in the loop. It's a simple, binary decision. Decelerating will consume over half the mass of the Golden Age. If human biological continuity is to be maintained, all that clunky, hopelessly outdated wetware and its associated supporting paraphernalia, the cold sleepers, the gametes, the embryos and the crisp mats must be preserved. Weighed against that is a future refined and optimised over many centuries of travel, the processing substrate that hosts ship's mind and the minds of all Ico's old crewmates. The captain remembers the rest of her dream and chooses.
4: ATU-334 The Wise by Maria Smiths Baba Yaga was not one for reminiscing, but she'd had a difficult day, a dull day, and, and wanted nothing more than to sit by her starry fireplace with a cup of chamomile tea and to remember the good old days. The days when her house used to dance and twirl on its chicken legs. The days when she used to fly about in a mortar. Her broom sweeping the skies. Those were the days when she had power to amaze and frighten people. But now they had their own spaceships. As well as the physical and mental enhancements that made them so much more and and so much less. They were no longer in awe of her. Still, she consoled herself. Her new home wasn't so bad. It had some fine views of the universe, a few plants at the windows, and a black hole not too far away. It was comforting to be so close to something so dangerous, so... like herself. And its accretion disc was spectacular. My, what an age it had been since that Russian girl. so innocent and yet so wise, had come to visit her. Baba Yaga sighed and then chuckled as she recalled a more recent visitor. Humanity was still able to throw her the odd, interesting challenge. This girl, or was she more AI than girl, had come to her house,
2: asking for light. And this girl, unlike so
4: many, had actually seemed wary of her. Bobby Yaga, out of habit, <laughs> had agreed to give her the light, but only if she was successful in carrying out three tasks she had set for her. If the girl, who called herself ATU334, failed to complete the challenges, she'd be killed, exterminated, vaporised, squished. Of course, they were impossible challenges, way beyond the girl's computational abilities, and Baba Yaga had begun to relish the idea of sending the girl to her death. But the girl had surprised her by completing
2: the tasks. How did you do it? Baba Yaga had asked. The girl had tapped her head. By my mother's blessing. Baba Yaga had grimaced. What blessing! An instinct chip that my mother had gifted me with on her death. Baba Yaga scowled. She gave the girl the starlight from her fireplace and sent her packing.
4: Later, Baba Yaga had made inquiries of the girl. Apparently, she'd taken the starlight back home to her cruel clone sisters, the one who sent her out on this dangerous errand in the first place. And then, the starlight had incinerated them. The girl, wise enough not to mess with a growing star, had thrown it up into the heavens, where it quickly drew a system of planets towards it. Babiaga sighed.
2: Sipped a little more tea. She shook her head, muttered, <laughs> Instinct chips, whatever next? Right on cue. There was a knock on the door. Babiaga grinned. <laughs>
0: Yas, Queen. In the first half of the show, you heard Keeping the Peace by Katrina Butler and Rob Butler, read by Debbie Cannon. A Choice for the Golden Age by Matthew Castle, read by Danielle Farrow. And ATU334, The Wise, by Maria Smiths, read by Izzy Hourahan. I hope I've said that right. I'm really sorry if I haven't. I've done research and everything. There's a footballer called Connor Hourahan, and he says he likes his name pronounced Hurahan so there you go. I believe it's a cork thing. Now, if you have stumbled across this podcast without knowing what our parent publication is, then it may very well interest you if you've enjoyed these stories. Shoreline of Infinity is a quarterly Scottish science fiction magazine. It contains the works of Scottish and international authors, poets, artists and reviewers. You can find out more, subscribe to future issues and order back issues through our website, shorelineofinfinity.com. Shoreline of Infinity also hosts the live gatherings known as Event Horizon, which I pretend to myself is named after the very underrated 1997 Paul W.S. Anderson movie. It's at the world-famous Frankenstein and Beer Keller in the heart of Edinburgh. You can find the Event Horizon, along with Shoreline of Infinity itself, on Facebook. If you'd like to advertise on Soundwave, and have your brand associated with some of the finest and most cutting-edge science fiction out there, you can. Just send an email to soundwave at shorelineofinfinity.com with the subject line podcast sponsor. We have pre-show intro, mid-show, and post credit slots available, and if you want, you can have them all if you really want to make a splash. Now for the second part of our programming, in which you'll find Guy Stewart's Pigeon, read by me, and our, I think it would be fair to say, and not unfair to the others, our centrepiece of the show, a festive audio drama to get you in the mood. Not in that way, I meant in a Christmas way, I've ruined this link. Anyway, here's me, reading Pigeon, by Guy Stewart. I'll say that again, in an American accent. Pigeon, by Guy Stewart. Read by R.J. Bailey. July 12, 1895. Mother said that a long time ago, when she was a girl... They ate pigeon every day, sometimes for days and days at a time. When she was a girl, pigeon didn't make you vomit until you brought up only blood. When I asked her if they sounded nicer when she was a girl, she said, No, they've always sounded like a rusty mill wheel pump in a dust storm. July 14, 1895 the Mother is worried. The store in town said that they're out of shotgun shells. Pa and Danforth, my oldest brother, spent the afternoon casting lead ball shot and packing Grandpa's old musket. This morning, a family came through town in a prairie schooner. Mother covered my eyes as she dragged me away, but I saw before she could get her hands over them. The wagon cover was shredded, and there were dead people in it. It didn't look like they had any eyes, neither. She took me and Dennis, Dorothy, and Deborah into the tornado shelter. Mother cried about the end of the world until Pa came down and held on to her tight. Danforth didn't even say anything nasty to me when I held Mother's hand, too. When we got back to work, he came up to me and asked if I wanted to know what was really going on. "'Why you want to tell me?' I asked. "'Cause you're always reading them crazy books.' His idea of crazy books a Jules Verne's From Earth to the Moon and H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. I shrugged, expecting him to start in on me again. Ever since he stopped schooling and started working with Pa, he's acting like he's all better than the rest of us. But I've seen the look on his face lately, like when the pigeons in the sky are worse than a tornado. When they all land and eat the ground bare, and there's nothing we can do because their feathers and skin are poison, and the meat makes you vomit blood. Damforth said, I've been hearing things in town. What kind of things? I scowled, crossed my arms over my chest, which had gotten bigger lately. He shrugged. Fine then, you don't want to know. He turned and headed out of the house. Mother was busy with cleaning up after dinner. I hated myself for it, but I ran after him and blurted, What have you heard? He turned and leaned toward me. You know that crazy Wells book you were so moony over last summer? The Time Machine. That's the one. I heard in town that it's real. In St. Paul. What does that have to do with anything? He shrugged. Someone said that someone said that even though it didn't look like the illustration in your book, there's a time traveler there who talked to the governor for days and days then disappeared. The picture you saw was from a children's book. He grunted. Anyway, they said they heard that someone heard that the time traveler wanted to know everything about the birds, only he called them passenger pigeons. What are those? Pigeons are pigeons. Danforth shrugged and went back to work. Mother called me to help her wash dishes. July 19, 1895. I've been thinking about what the time traveler could possibly want with pigeons. They're monsters. Preachers around these parts think that they're a curse placed on mankind. I heard one say it was for the hubris of thinking he was better than nature. When I was doing dishes, I asked Pa about pigeons eating people. Pa says that the pigeons don't eat human meat, except for the eyes. Mother hushed him up real fast and asked me if I'd heard what he said. I turned around and said, What? Mother managed a pained smile and a glance at Pa that would have peeled paint from the outhouse, if there had been any paint left on it. Later that day, a pigeon flock passed over our town, and it was dark enough to have to light the lanterns. The sound was horrible, and we could hear the birds relieve themselves on our house and the ground outside. Their relief was poison to the ground. Mother shouted at the roof as if she was trying to scare them away. She scared the little ones so much, I finally had to hold the youngest and let the others lean on me. It took fifteen hours for the flock to pass. Mother said, Our time is over, and this is the end of humanity. We will die surrounded by meat we can't eat anymore. They've eaten the food we've grown. Our waters have been poisoned by pigeons that drop a deadly rain as they pass over us. Pa said nothing. But hung his head. Danforth and me looked at each other until finally he couldn't hold my eyes no more and looked away. He looked so much like Pa, it made my heart clench tight. Time passed, and the deafening shriek of the passing flock faded into complete silence. Even so, no one moved. Didn't seem like it was worth it, Whatever we'd had yesterday was gone now. Seemed like, given time, pigeons would rule the world, and humanity would be extinct.
5: Non-scalar been zero, but the electroweak breaking is not spontaneous. What is controlling it? What's wrong with you? Don't work, damn it! Eleven seventeen. Huh. Still eleven seventeen. Eleven seventeen. What is going on? What?
6: Jesus! Who the hell are you? Uh, I don't have a name, but you can call me Edward. I believe your grandfather had a friend of that name, a travelling magician, and you remember him fondly. I am his age and build, and I even sound like him. I'm Edward.
5: You're not on the team. How did you get past security? The scanners? How do you know all that about me? No, I am not on the team, Dr. Fisher. Okay. Let's find out who you are. How about that, Edward. Your research, Dr. Fisher? Whoever you are, you have to leave. You shouldn't be in here. What about my research? It has provoked strong interest. Look, if you're from the Tevatron Institute, I've told them that I'm not interested in a new position right now. It's a very generous offer
6: they've made, but just... Pan-dimensional entities, Dr. Fisher. I am their conduit, their means of communication. These entities appreciate the effort you have expended, and they applaud your ingenuity. Stay back. Ah, Really, Dr. Fisher, there's no need for this. Put the chair down. Please let me go. Not yet. What do you want? To talk. (laughs) It is 11.17 and 23 seconds, Dr. Fisher. It will stay that time until we have finished our conversation. I suggest you accept this situation and tailor your responses accordingly. What? What do you want from me? It is very simple. You must, you will, discontinue your work with immediate effect. My work? My work? Blundering across the dimensional planes is extremely dangerous. You may call the entities I represent a police force employed to correct this dangerous behaviour. Get
5: out of here. I don't care
6: who you represent or how you...
5: Just get out! Nothing is going to get in the way of my work. Nothing and no one.
6: I'm afraid I cannot leave, not yet. The Guardians will stop your research, Dr. Fisher, one way or another. However, if you force them to materially intervene in this timeline, the consequences for the world you are familiar with could be severe. I can't do that. I can't stop. It's all a trick.
5: I don't know how... uh, A trick! Stand still.
6: When are we? When? You tell me. Paleobiology formed part of your undergraduate studies. Quaternary
5: period, definitely. I'd say late Pleistocene, About 200,000 years BP. This is amazing! What I could do here to bring proof back? So many gaps in our knowledge
6: filled! This is the past, certainly, but a little later than you think. This is the year 1981. How? What happened? Oh, in this timeline, a change. Many millions of years ago, a certain small early mammal usurped the habitat of a certain other small early mammal, subsequent speciation was affected, change proliferated, and, and this world is the result. Don't you know it? This place? In your timeline, this is Shooter's Hill. The Thames, Blackheath, Greenwich. No one will ever say these names because Homo sapiens does not evolve in this timeline. Homo habilis of a rough equivalent is as clever as anything gets around here. What bird is that? My god! It wasn't hunting you, Dr. Fisher. You did not exist in this timeline. I don't give a fuck where I exist.
5: I want out of here. What will happen if I continue my work? Will I affect the future like that?
6: Oh, it's impossible to say. And that's exactly why the Guardians won't allow it. Other species have been where you are now, and they took heed of our warning. Dimensional planes cannot be ruptured. They cannot simply be broken into with this crude attempt at picking the locks. Anything is possible, but the Guardians like to keep a certain order. If everything happened at once, well, then nothing could exist. You praised my effort. My ingenuity. I did. The
5: ingenuity that led me to this point. This discovery. But you want me to stop. You want me to turn my eyes away just when the biggest secret of all is waiting. Right there. What do I do now if I stop all that? Take up gardening? I can't be held responsible for the past Edward or whatever the hell your name is.
6: Not even at any point in the 36 years, 5 months and 14 days you've been alive? Are you responsible for nothing that has happened in that time? That's not what I meant. I meant big
5: changes. World-shattering events. I have no responsibility for those, not even in the time I've been alive.
6: World-shattering Earth? war. An asteroid. War, yes, but on a much grander scale than you envisage. This is indeed Earth. Eight days ago, it was a junior member in an alliance of galactic civilizations, and now it is no more. From the smallest microbe to the Great Barrier Reef, nothing lives here in this timeline. Most of the atmosphere has been stripped except for the heaviest elements, and the planet's axial tilt has been changed. You would not be able to breathe here. It is a dead world. Did I cause this? This is also 1981, Dr. Fisher. Shooter's Hill. A discovery is made in the year 1168 by a man who dies as a child in your timeline... In your timeline, that discovery takes another 500 years. But here, the process of technological change accelerates. By 1981, your species has traveled 30 light years in all directions. They make friends, they make enemies. Fucking toast.
5: To be capable of traveling 30 light years, someone in this timeline must have copied my work, found out what I did. Of course. And she stopped.
6: Just like you're going to.
5: Why? Did research like mine cause this? No. Then why should I?
6: Because all timelines are at risk. This, all this destruction, this is as nothing compared with the damage you could do. Everyone and everywhere. You've seen what effect a slight change in the distant past can produce, smashing your British way through the dimensional planes. You will stop your work, Dr. Fisher. Or you'll be stopped. You have no choice in the matter. I know that's an unusual situation for you, but there we are. It's not easy when you have an important job to do. Others don't really understand. To appreciate the goals we set ourselves or the pressure which responsibility brings. Believe me, I know. I have responsibilities in every timeline. What's a man to do? Time passes and then you forget how to smile. Worst of all, it doesn't seem that important anymore. For some of us, there is only work and a world of no colour. We only have the memory of another way of existing, echoes of ordinary joy, of other people. It's the price we pay. But it is a pity, don't you think?
5: My wife! M- my. Yes. She'll be my ex wife. This is 1981.
6: No, this is tonight. Three hours ago.
5: She can't see or hear me, can she? Correct. What are we doing here? Why is she crying?
6: Really, Dr. Fisher, an intelligent man like you?
5: It is her who's divorcing me. You probably know that.
6: Of course. I also know that your ex-wife is aware how important your work is to you, even now. That was never the issue, how important your family was to you. That was the question she asked. Not directly, but in her own way. You did not answer that question because you understood nothing. But conscious choices often produce uncontrollable and unpleasant consequences. I think you're beginning to understand.
4: Mom, I can't sleep. Is Daddy here?
1: Oh, you've had a bad dream. It's not real. It's okay, baby. Hmm... You merry gentlemen Let nothing you dismay For Jesus Christ our Savior
6: Here is the earth-shattering event you wanted, Dr. Fisher. Her world has been broken apart And that of your son. Sam doesn't sleep very well now. He's getting into trouble at school. And And your ex-wife is exhausted. I'm afraid you are responsible for this. It was your choice. She still loves you, but her heart is hardening, and soon it will be too late. In three weeks' time, your divorce will become absolute. Seventy-eight days from then, your ex-wife meets Someone else. Through a work colleague and a tentative first date follows, it leads to a second date and to a relationship. Selfishness is the bloom that chokes the garden. This other man has the capacity to put other people before himself. I did love her. I do, I don't know, don't what to say. Existence is a web of complexity. Move too suddenly, too aggressively, and all you'll do is break threads. In higher dimensions there are other worlds, other realities, other colours. Can you imagine a new colour? An entirely different colour to any you've ever seen. When you are ready, if that is ever the case, your species will be shown how to operate across the dimensional planes, but you will not be allowed to force your way in like children. There are always rules, and there are those who enforce them, usually to the benefit of those trying to break them. But you want to know. You're curious. And you want to leave your mark. Look elsewhere, it will be more productive for yourself and for humanity and safer. Edward,
5: eleven seventeen. Eleven eighteen. Thank God, Simone.
0: Soundwave, episode zero. Complete. You just heard the audio drama Other Colours, originally by Michael F. Russell and adapted by Jonathan Whiteside. The actors were Jonathan Whiteside and Ben Blow. Sound design by me, R.J. Bailey. The stories you heard on this episode in order were Keeping the Peace by Katrina Butler and Rob Butler, read by Debbie Cannon. A Choice for the Golden Age by Matthew Castle, read by Danielle Farrow. ATU334 The Wise by Majira Smits, read by Izzy Hurahan. I'm really sorry if I've got your name wrong again. Pigeon by Guy Stewart, read by me, R.J. Bailey. Soundwave is produced by me, R.J. Bailey, Noel Chidwick, and an easily triggered malignant artificial intelligence, and written by R.J. Bailey. So join us next time for the first episode of My Sonic Space, in which I'll be chatting with well-legit sci-fi author Ann Charnock, scribe of Dreams Before the Start of Time, The Enclave, and A Calculated Life. We'll have another story for you, as well as some poetry, and we'll also be hearing what's happening with Shoreline of Infinity's magazine and Event Horizon. Just a reminder that you can sponsor that very episode coming 2019 early doors if you're very quick though by emailing soundwave at shorelineofinfinity.com. I'm already plotting the purchase of Isotope RX-7 with any monies you deign to donate to us so that will allow us to create episodes even faster and do an even better technical quality. If you've enjoyed this podcast We appreciate it if you leave a review wherever you got this episode. I'm not saying you should leave a five-star review, but I'm just saying, if you're going to go, go big. It helps other sound travellers discover this sci-fi space which you and I now inhabit together. Send us any correspondence at all to soundwave at shorelineofinfinity.com and if you want to have a higher chance of a very immediate response, best use at RJ Bailey on Twitter. So, until next time, traveler, I'll see you in the sound wave.